Hi guys and welcome back to the Female Fitness Podcast. I'm your host Danny, and today I have the pleasure of being joined by Alessia who is an online coach who helps support clients who are trying to conceive and she is also on her own sort of journey as well which I'm sure we'll delve into in a little bit more detail. So Alessia how long have you been coaching and what made you want to get into sort of like this side of the industry? Yeah, hello. Um, so um, I'm still a fairly new coach, actually. So I only started coaching uh, August 2021. Um, I always had a really keen interest in nutrition um, and did my nutrition qualification, my courses and everything quite a while ago now, I think like about probably four or five years ago. Um, and like I said, just through my, like, my own personal interest. But because um, me and my husband started to try and conceive, in 2020 I feel like the pandemic has just just ruined all of our time management yeah. you know, like our perception of time so I keep having to think about when when did things happen but yeah in 2020 um and um yeah basically we kind of struggled a little bit and it kind of came up to like the year's mark and um we kind of looked into like ways to try and figure out what was going on basically and uh, kind of figured out some other bits as well around IVF and kind of genetic testing I can go into more detail after a while but basically like that then kind of got me thinking okay this would be my in maybe into the kind of coaching um, industry or fitness industry a little bit more like to actually start my own coaching practice just because I was told I would have to lose weight myself to be able to be eligible for IVF and I think the advice that the consultant gave me was why don't you start a crash diet <laughs> or like a fad diet and just like lose quickly basically and and he kind of it was just a passing comment but it actually just stuck so much with me that I thought this is absolutely ridiculous that this advice would be given out and I think especially like at least with my um, with my nutrition qualification and my coaching qualification I knew not to take that advice but I just kind of thought like what like what kind of havoc can that cause like for other people and you're so vulnerable in that situation anyway you know like you're trying to conceive things haven't gone well um, and you kind of you would literally do anything at that point to try and do something and uh, to be fair I actually not not because of the consultant but I think before we even looked at that I did just think like oh maybe I should just try 1200 calories and just see what happens you know maybe I can rack up enough discipline or whatever but you know it just didn't obviously it didn't work out um but yeah so I think but that really just kind of like I said, I, I was always interested in the nutrition side of things and the kind of science and everything. But I think that really kind of just ignited like a passion, I think, inside me that I thought, no, I, like if I can help this, then I w- would want to help this. And yeah, and that's how I ended up coaching, basically. Yeah, that's amazing. And I think there's a lot to be said for having been through a similar journey that your clients are going through yeah. or going through a similar journey to what your clients are going through, because obviously like someone like myself I could help people Mm -hmm. technically you know lose body fat to try and conceive but I've never been through that process myself and so I can't fully imagine what it would be like to to be in their shoes whereas you can which is incredible yeah (laughs) yeah thanks absolutely yeah and when what I was going to say as well as like you're you're so fortunate in that you had that education when that was suggested to you Mm -hmm. because like you said there's so many people who just don't and you're in such a vulnerable position yeah 
No, absolutely. I think it's really, yeah, I think that's why it just stopped with me so much and I think there's there's so much conflicting information just generally around nutrition and I think just like there's lots of people I say you need to do x y and z you know to conceive or you know like proper just what you would see in the fitness industry as well just generally just people trying to sell something that just isn't that necessarily shouldn't necessarily be sold to anybody you know I mean it should be much more just like people that have no morals and no ethics basically trying to just get people to do something um so yeah, so I think I think it's really important that when then also health professionals kind of chime in and then give you like kind of like just really lazy advice, it just really doesn't help. Like I get it, the consultant, they look at research, they look at like 1200 calorie diets working, you know, for people in a research setting, but obviously it just doesn't really translate to, to the public basically. So I think that's kind of the missing link, but I think to the person that attends, it just sounds like the same. It just sounds like people on Instagram advertising, hey, just do this 1,200-calorie diet and you'll be fine. Yeah. And so if anyone listening to this sort of knows that they want to have children at some point, when should they really start thinking about preparing themselves for this so that they have the best possible chances of conceiving? I mean, so I think ideally probably before you would decide that you want to start ideally you would kind of think about it a little bit ahead of time if that suits you know your life plan I suppose and also like you know maybe it's not really a plan like maybe you don't really know what's happening you just randomly deciding like that's fine but the reason I say it would be best to do it kind of like three months before you actually start um to try and actually to try and conceive is because the recommendation from the NHS is that that people should take or women should take uh, folic acid for example and that's really quite an important supplement because it um, prevents kind of like developmental um, issues um, of the fetus especially kind of um, I've forgotten all what the actual term is but basically like yeah like developmental issues and kind of um, neuro- neurological related issues basically and um, yeah so I think the general recommendation is like if you can start taking folic acid three months ahead of you actually trying to conceive and that kind of prepares you a little bit but that's kind of like the bare minimum I suppose but as soon as you really decide to try and conceive I think it's just yeah I think that's the best time then also to try and prepare for it and not kind of delay it I suppose um and yeah there's various considerations but I just kind of yeah so I'd say like three months before and then but also if you don't it's like don't panic just take folic acid that's the main thing (laughs) yeah and I suppose in a way a lot of the things that you would do to give yourself the best possible chance of conceiving would have a beneficial impact on people's health anyway. And so if people can do that as a part of their lives, even if I suppose maybe they're like, maybe they're in a position where they know they potentially want to have children one day, they're not really sure when, like the things that you would do to improve your chances of that would have a positive impact on your health and your life regardless of whether you're going to try and conceive in the next few months or not. Yeah, absolutely. I think the recommendations in general, like beyond the folic acid, just nutritionally or in terms of lifestyles are the things that we would generally recommend as coaches to our clients as well, or just generally for the the general population. Um, So I think absolutely. But I think also, I think the decision to try and conceive can be quite a tricky one. I think kind of talking about my own experience, I think I was really excited and, I, I did actually have friends that tell me beforehand, you know, look, it can take a little bit longer than what you expect. But I think 
still just being so in the mindset of like you know we like most of us or I don't know what it's like like with younger generations but at least when I went to school it was very much the kind of like and you know you were told like if you had sex once unprotected you're going to be pregnant immediately <laughs> you know what I mean like yeah. so it was always this narrative of don't do it for absolutely understandable reasons I totally get why that's really important but obviously then like what 20 years later <laughs> um when I'm when when you are then ready to conceive and then you kind of still have this kind of underlying expectation that that's what's going to happen then yeah it can be really disappointing so I think while it's really good to prepare like in terms of nutrition and lifestyle I think mentally like kind of understanding that things might not necessarily go the way you might think it would go uh, is maybe also important <laughs> Yeah, you're so right. Like it was exactly the same for for me growing up. It's sort of like it's almost to some extent kind of fear mongering. Like, but I like you said, I understand why. Like it's for a reason, mm-hmm. for a good reason. Yeah. But then it it just sets you up in this mindset of thinking, as soon as I have unprotected sex, I'm going to get pregnant, yeah. which is obviously yeah. not the case. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, they, obviously there are also cases where it does yeah. happen. <laughs> so that's kind of the issue isn't it like you know like there's there are plenty of examples where people do you know like where it does uh, like happen accidentally or planned whatever it is and that that's absolutely fine that's great and to be fair the majority of people will probably not face issues as such um but even if we're talking um so for example like so like the definition of infertility is that if you if it takes longer than 12 months to conceive but 12 months already can be quite a long time so we're talking only it's only like 12 cycles if you have regular cycles to start off with so that's that's one thing I suppose but um it, it's not really like it can be quite a long time if you're constantly like waiting for something to happen or you know for that positive test so even those 12 months yeah like I said it can just be a bit of a it can mess with your head I suppose yeah and so we spoke about sort of preparing to conceive to improve your chances of that. What does this actually look like in practice from a nutrition perspective? Yeah. So from a nutrition perspective, kind of, so there is no like specific diet or way of eating that guarantees pregnancy. And like, there really isn't anything that, you know, you can't, there's no pill or anything that anybody can take and they're going to fall pregnant from that. Basically, that's kind of like important to say, um, even though according to certain people on Instagram, <laughs> spammers and scammers, uh, they like I said, they will try and sell you anything. But um, what's kind of the, the most recommended diet in terms of um, that can kind of support and protect fertility is the Mediterranean diet. And um, that's kind of the reason for that is because it's, uh, it promotes kind of eating quite low saturated fats and kind of focusing more on mono and polyunsaturated fats so things like your olive oil your cold pressed rapeseed oils those kind of things nuts um avocado like all the kind of good fats and oily fish and then also really key is lots of like variety and colorful vegetables and fruit and like the more color the better basically and that really is important for like your antioxidants and also for your fiber and fiber again as well just focusing on whole grains and getting a lot of like good whole grains in you so it'd be bread bread yes you're allowed to eat bread it's absolutely fine (laughs) but bread and like pastas rice everything um, and like I said but also like grains like quinoa or different kind of colored rice stuff like that is really important to get in um but I, th- I, th- I suppose as well, the Mediterranean diet is also quite good because it's not just about the 
actual kind of food or the like the food that you consume but it's also kind of the way of eating so kind of sharing your meal times with other people together enjoying your food like taking time to cook your food and kind of enjoy the process of making food and making food that actually tastes nice to you and yeah like I do understand there's kind of certain barriers to that you know day to day nobody or most people don't have a lot of time just to like stand in the kitchen for two hours but there's lots you can do and, and try and different but like I said just adding variety to your food to make it kind of delicious and, and and tasty so I think that's really important yeah and are there what are the recommendations around caffeine because I know that a lot of people listen to this podcast probably do yeah. like caffeine a lot of people <laughs> in our industry definitely do true. so what are the recommendations around that that's true to be fair I always just bang on so much about eating vegetables because I feel like nobody eats enough vegetables yeah. so that's always like my go-to line but yes absolutely caffeine is quite important so um caffeine like ideally to reduce it to no more than 200 milligrams a day um, and that is kind of probably like one to two cups of coffee depending on how you make your coffee so it's, I suppose it's kind of a little bit hard to judge but uh, but also just to take into account that obviously things like chocolate or caffeine like tea you know unless you drink decaf tea all of these kind of things include uh, caffeine as well so if you already have a cup and then you also eat chocolate and maybe have a cup of tea later like that's really you um, for the day and um, so that's just something to take into consideration that's not just coffee or tea but there's other foods as well yeah and do you know actually why that is like what the the sort of like link to caffeine and fertility is I'm not actually so I think in terms of fertility I'm not really sure to be quite honest I don't know what exactly it does in the body I think in terms of pregnancy I think it can create kind of developmental issues with the child but I think a lot of the recommendations, as far as I know, kind of lead into pregnancy. So a lot of the fertility recommendations have more to do with what it can then do actually once you are pregnant and how it can affect that. And that's the same kind of a body weight as well. So I wonder if the link is kind of to do with that. I could imagine that caffeine can maybe have a, like also an, an impact in terms of just like the like the development of the actual egg or sperm cells, for example. But again, like I think some of the research that is a lot of the like a lot of a lot of what it is in terms of the nutrition research I think for fertility is quite still mechanistic I think in a way and and a lot of it is not necessarily okay if you do this then like I said you'll definitely fall pregnant or you know something definitely happens I think it's all about reducing risk of things happening rather than like like causation like x leads to to y if that makes sense so Similar, like I said, with caffeine, I think there is a, to be fair, I think there's probably studies that tell you that perfectly fine in then higher dosage. But like I said, the general recommendation is to stay below 200 milligrams. And because, you know, like mostly that is quite easy for people to achieve, maybe yeah. after a time of adjustment. <laughs> yeah, after they've gotten used to it. Yeah. After the initial, like grace period where you might yes. be a little, yeah. bit, <laughs> a little bit lethargic. Mm -hmm. um, and so when it comes to alcohol, what are the recommendations from that perspective? Again, alcohol is again a tricky one because there aren't really, there isn't anything exactly saying like if you drink X amount of alcohol, you're definitely not going to be able to conceive or, you you know, or, or it's definitely going to have a huge impact on, on your fertility. For men, I know that in terms of sperm quality, so if we want to 
think about the development of sperm that binge drinking is definitely not recommended and the same for women to be fair as well but like the way I've seen is kind of usually more linked to sperm but I think the general recommendation again is that you know you should stick to kind of like having like a couple of drinks here and there rather than going out and having like multiple drinks in one setting um as part of the Mediterranean diet glasses of wine are allowed so <laughs> so that is kind of part of it as well but like I said the sometimes it's a little bit boring the recommendations for fertility because they're just not really that sexy they're not really like hey like just cut all of this out and you'll be fine or they're not really like exciting but it really comes down to kind of like finding a balance rather than taking anything to an extreme I think that is really the what what it's like for fertility and going then also into pregnancy basically yeah and in a way it's a good thing that the recommendations aren't extreme because Mm -hmm. then obviously it's it's much more realistic for people to make lifestyle changes and be able to improve their chances of conceiving without developing Mm -hmm. like disordered eating habits for example so it's kind of a good thing in a way and that's that's not to mention you know the fact that people recommend that you follow a 1200 calorie diet per day yeah. <laughs> that's a different yes. matter but the yeah. fact that the actual evidence based recommendations are sort of simple lifestyle changes is a, is a good thing in practice yeah. really absolutely no i totally agree i just sometimes find in terms of to get people to actually then establish or to to get i think what i find with people is that when they see that they kind of just think like oh but that's just well that's just general healthy life and kind of like it just doesn't seem to like motivate anybody enough to really want to pursue that or they think it's not extreme enough they think they need to do something more because you know if it would because they kind of feel like oh well if I just eat more broccoli like how is that going to change anything but yeah so I think yeah I totally understand what you mean like in in from from a coaching perspective it's great that these are the kind of recommendations I suppose but I think from an individual perspective I think what I find is like people are a bit kind of like yeah but that can't just be all of it like surely I need to do something more extreme yeah I hear you on that like it's very similar to obviously if you're trying to persuade a client to go about fat loss in a more sustainable way and they're often mm-hmm. quite tempted to buy into like quick fixes or transformation yeah. challenges because they look more extreme and they're yeah. going to promise like drastic changes so yeah. it's a similar sort of like thing in a way yeah. um and again it's just like trying to I suppose coming at it from the standpoint of like no this is evidence-based like this has been proven mm-hmm. And this yeah. is what's going to actually also keep your relationship with food intact and result yeah. in a healthier mind as well as like a healthier body. Um, yeah. And yeah. what what should people think about from a lifestyle and training perspective when they're trying to improve their, their chances of conceiving? So I think just, again, like, I think it just goes in line with the general well I, I suppose when it comes to trading and, and movement I think you kind of need to start with where wherever they are at just now I think there's no point in like starting something major when you know when you currently just walk 2,000 steps I suppose uh, every day so I think it's about kind of finding something that you like doing and just moving your body on a regular basis as much as you can Um, if it's obviously if it's to do with that you're also trying to lose weight then I think kind of looking at like you know, kind of increasing just daily movement is quite important. 
but I think on the other on the other aspect because sorry my brain always automatically jumps to kind of reducing weight because my main clientele is people that have a BMI of above 30 but obviously we do also need to take into consideration like people whose BMI are maybe quite a lot lower who are maybe over training um, or training too much not taking in enough calories etc and obviously for those for those people like there could be fertility issues just in terms of like losing their periods or having irregular periods for that matter so sometimes it might actually be not so much about increasing movement or training but it might actually be about reducing and making sure that like the impact on kind of like the dimensional cycle um um is kind of fixed in that in that way so um just to say like because i'm not a pt so i can't really specifically say like here's you know like what exactly you should do with your training but it's just more about like trying to find a balance and more and trying to like like moderate your training I suppose in some in some respects so that you don't overtrain so that it doesn't impact on your um on your uh, periods and I suppose to give your body like the chance to kind of focus on like I said like egg development sperm development to kind of have resources in that in in that area yeah is there any out of interest I don't know if you'll know the answer to this is there any specific styles of training that are recommended or recommended that you steer away from um it really depends so for example there are some studies for people that um suffer with PCOS for example I think where HIIT training has actually been quite beneficial to them but again I think so for, for the for the people that I tend to work with, I suppose a lot of them aren't necessarily into like regular training or some of them have never even tried weightlifting or anything before. So I think to those people, I say, just try something and try and find something that you actually like and that you will enjoy. Whereas I think for people who are kind of already in a regular exercise um, regime, again, like, you know, it's just about moving and being, being there. But yeah, I think if it's about overtraining, then obviously hit training definitely not because that is just a bit too much <laughs> about reducing. But I'm not aware that there is any like particular style of training that you should avoid. Again, I think when it comes to then actually being pregnant, that might be a different thing, just in yeah. terms of like you know body considerations. But in general, no, not that I'm aware of. No. Yeah, that's interesting. And I know that like even through um and this is obviously from my own sort of like knowledge and research I know that through the beginning stages of pregnancy nothing really needs to change from a training perspective mm-hmm. and it can actually help obviously support your mental yeah. and physical well-being and the process yeah. as a whole so um like I know that no drastic changes are needed from that perspective and I suppose when it comes to preparing your body to conceive it mostly probably comes down to managing stress and making sure that your training is realistic alongside your lifestyle and making sure yeah. that you've got enough fuel coming in to support the yeah. training that you're doing and that yeah. it's not excessive I guess yeah absolutely no absolutely and I think actually today I saw a post actually I think it was um the, I think there was like there is actually more evidence coming out I think that you know, even if you were to start training in pregnancy, like that is still fine. I think it's just all kind of just needs to be managed on an individual basis. So um, absolutely. I think in general, I think just trying to find a routine with your exercise. And if that's what you're used to, then that's fine during your fertility. Absolutely. Please. As long as you make sure you still eat enough. <laughs> yeah. And obviously that you have a regular cycle. And if training yes. is interfering with that, then it's something that potentially needs yes. to be stripped back. Um, absolutely. 
And I think this is an interesting question because I am going to sort of disclaimer this by saying that supplements are only ever like the icing on the cake. Mm -hmm. When I think, especially when it comes to fertility, they're really sort of pushed to sell programs and to sell coaching services. So are there any supplements that we can take to Mm -hmm. help improve our chances of conceiving that are legitimate? Yeah, I think so in terms of that are legitimate, it really probably is only folic acid. Like I think that is probably the most well-researched um, supplement to take. And like I said, that is definitely recommended by the NHS. I think I see more and more recommendations in terms of NHS that also talk about vitamin D, for example, which is also important. But then again, that is more like a public health recommendation in general, especially for people in the UK. And um, now that we've gone into autumn and, and winter, um, and vitamin D in general, well-researched supplement, like, you know, nothing bad is going to happen if you take that, it's going to be beneficial. Um, but ha- like taking like a general um, like multivitamin, like for preconception is useful as well, because it does just add, yeah, it just gives you like a little bit of the extra levels. But like you said, supplements are always the icing on the cake. There's, I don't want to say there's no point because they obviously like your levels will be increased. So it is good, but there isn't really there isn't really much point in taking and spending loads of money and loads of supplements if you barely eat two vegetables basically or just you know like just don't really have a lot of variety of you you've not even like tried to improve your diet so like it sounds harsh but it is the reality so it's kind of just like instead of kind of spending money on that it's probably better like looking at you know you know yeah like how can you kind of improve your your shopping list how can you improve your kind of food game or meal meal game I suppose um to just eat better overall day to day and that will have a really significant impact overall before you can then look at supplementation in general though to be fair the multivitamins like the preconception ones are kind of more affordable like you can get them kind of just in most shops to be quite honest so um, it, def- it definitely doesn't harm and I think that's in general that's probably also what most kind of if you then go down the fertility clinic route or GPs like that they would recommend that somebody takes the multivitamin usually then the preconception multivitamin usually already has the um, recommended dosage of folic acid um, in that already so that's something just to consider that you don't double up however for people who have a BMI of 30 or above they might actually require a higher dosage of a folic acid. And sometimes a GP will then describe uh, a five milligram dosage of folic acid. So it's worth looking if you have a higher BMI um, going to your GP to discuss whether you should be on a higher dosage of folic acid. Um, so that's quite important. Um, yeah. So, but yeah, preconception multivitamin mostly. There are other considerations for supplementation. However, that is more for further down the line, like if there are already established um, fertility issues or, you know, obviously if you have PCOS, there might be certain considerations or even endometriosis or, like I said, if there's like some sort of a diagnosis in play, then that might be different. But I think you definitely need to speak to your GP and or, you know, if a fertility clinic is involved, like to them to kind of get recommendations. Yeah, I know inositol is one of the mm-hmm. sort of like recommendations for PCOS. Is that something that you have sort of like read much into? Um, yeah, like I am aware that 
it can ha it can help, but I think there's quite probably quite a few different kind of things that people depend on taking depending what they are taking. So it can be inositol or it can be what's called inofolic inofolic alpha. So that's like inositol together with folic acid because some of the absorption can be better. So again, like I think it just depends on what. It is very individual, I think, when it comes when it comes to that, and I think it just depends on what else you're taking as well, because there might be other things like people with PCOS might already be taking metformin or kind of other kind of like ovulation induction, like helping like kind of tablets or, or like medication in relation to that as well. So I would always err on the side of caution, kind of say go and speak to your GP in a trust place. Yeah, definitely, and obviously supplements as well they can become so expensive if you have like a massive shopping yeah. list of stuff yeah. and like you've identified the things that are going to have so, like a, a profound impact are our lifestyle factors and if mm -hmm. someone goes from consuming like no fruit and veg to having fruit yeah. or veg with each meal for example it's going to have such significant impact and so it's not really worth considering things like supplementation until you've yeah. addressed those lifestyle factors yeah, absolutely. And to be fair, there is some research to say, for example, when we're talking about omega-3, so what we're getting from like oily fish, for example, omega-3 from oily fish is better um, used in our bodies if you eat it directly from the source. So if you use it, eat it directly from the fish as opposed to supplementing omega-3, obviously like people who are vegetarian or vegan, you know, you know, eating the fish is not an option. That's absolutely fine. And you can take like an algae supplement, which is absolutely fine. But like I said, like food does come first, is except for folic acid. That's different. <laughs> yeah, that's the one that people. And if someone does want to supplement with folic acid, is there somewhere that they should look to get it? Uh, you can literally buy it anywhere. So folic acid is actually the synthetic form of folate. So folate is what actually occurs in in foods. So it's like green leafy vegetables and um, some like grains like bread, folic acid. Some of it, I think our flour, I don't know if it's already happened, but I think is it the UK and the EU or either of them have actually agreed to supplement uh, bread flour and pasta flour um, uh, for, for everybody basically for the whole population with like a small amount of folic acid just to kind of help prevent like um, like developmental issues in like unplanned pregnancies for example and that's quite common already for example it already happens in Australia um, but yeah that was just a side note but yeah so folic acid is a synthetic like lab made form basically of folate and we can't really get the kind of right amounts of folate um, from the diet so that's why folic acid is produced but you can buy it anywhere literally you can get a little tub in Tesco boots like Sainsbury's usually anywhere and um, it's really like readily available or um, if you um, you can also go to your GP and get it prescribed I think especially if there's like financial issues and is there a certain dose that people should be looking to start taking or should they be a bit more specific with that um so it's like 400 units basically I think most of the most of the folic acid supplements that I've ever come across come in the right um dosage already and it usually has like a pregnancy sticker or something like that on it um already as well just for it to be identified um it's basically like a b vitamin as well so i think it depends but it will it will be like written on the box as folic acid so it's really quite quite easy to identify and even on the preconception multivitamins there's like a whole list of, of vitamins that you can read and again you'll be able to identify folic acid quite uh, quite easily that's perfect and 
there's sort of a common message that's put out that our fertility sort of drops off a cliff at a certain mm-hmm. age. Does our fertility decline as we age? And if so, to what extent? And is there anything that we can do about it? Um, so so it doesn't drop off a cliff. So it's not immediately just when a woman turns 35 that immediately she's like she can't conceive anymore. It's not really like that. However, it, it is also important to recognise that fertility does decline over time, which then means that trying to conceive can take longer. Um, and longer than, for example, 12 months or, you know, longer than even two years sometimes, depending on the age. And I think that's that is really really not discussed often enough I suppose and um, and it, it's become more common I suppose or one of the reasons why infertility is becoming more common just in general across the population is because people tend to uh, try to start trying to conceive a lot later in life you know just be, even just being fi- financially stable and all these kind of things tend to you know couples tend to want to have in place um so it just takes a little bit longer before somebody actually decides to try to conceive um we can't unfortunately do anything about the aging process that is just something that happens um sure like i said like lifestyle factors nutrition factors I think, like I said, the research around it, I think, is still quite mechanistically. So I don't know what will happen. But I think there's a lot of people that are interested to try and find out more about, you know, how fertility can be preserved. Because um, it is definitely an important topic, like I said, because um, because infertility is on the rise and the kind of general populations are kind of declining. And while maybe for the environment, that might not be a bad thing. Um, but uh, just in general, I suppose for countries, economies, etc., they obviously want more people, I would imagine. So I think there are kind of like huge like think tanks and research groups going on to try and kind of figure this out. But yeah, unfortunately, we can't really do anything in terms of ageing. Um, the kind of nutritional and lifestyle factors can be somewhat protective of fertility, but there's just no guarantee because we're really talking about, you know, like damaging, like the aging part is kind of damage to the DNA of like an egg cell or a sperm cell. So there's unfortunately at the moment, we don't really know how to fix that. Yeah. And I suppose it's probably becoming more of an issue because people are like, people are doing things much later now like people are Mm -hmm. retiring much later in life for example and that process is having a a big impact on when people start trying for children like people used to have children so much earlier like early 20s whereas now that's like very it's much less common and so I guess that's part of the issue there and there are obviously options like egg freezing but Mm -hmm. then again they are very expensive in a lot of circumstances yes absolutely I think long term I think something something that will need to happen I suppose if you want to encourage younger people to think about you know kind of they're trying to conceive journeys or just in general about fertility and all these things then yeah I think they will have to kind of make some sort of offers as opposed to 20 year olds or something to kind of get them into you know freeze their eggs but then I suppose there's also an argument of whether egg freezing is that useful i suppose because i think in general the consensus is that freezing embryos tends to be better like i think the um freezing an embryo and then using that embryo is um can can ends up in more live births basically or successful pregnancies basically um 
So, you know, freezing your eggs in your 20s, I suppose, is still no guarantee that you're actually going to then have a child whenever, you know, you get to that. And I think wrapping your head around all these things, it just becomes such a big thing. It's no longer then just like, oh, I'm just going to freeze my eggs. But then suddenly you're thinking about, oh, but then what if I don't have a child? Or like, you know, it's just kind of just spirals down into lots of conversations. So, but yeah, but I think at the moment, that's kind of what's available to us. So I think, I think for anybody listening who was maybe thought about this already and isn't quite sure about it, I think it's definitely worth looking into for everybody because that is what's available to us. And I think just generally uh, considering the topic of fertility and egg freezing or just, you know, how, how it might go for you in later life is quite important at this stage. Yeah, I suppose it is so hard because like when you're obviously in your early 20s, mm-hmm a lot of people won't even know whether they want children or not so then yeah. they're not thinking about egg freezing but yeah. and and especially with like I said the financial investment that comes with it I think mm-hmm. if it was something that cost very minimal money more people would do it because they think like yeah. why not but with the financial investment of it it's like unless someone is 100% certain that they definitely want children then yeah they're probably not even going to consider it that's true yeah and I think long term um yeah I think it's probably more like a I don't know if it will ever become like a public health thing or something but I think I suppose they will have to it's like the NHS would probably have to think about what they you know what is on offer because I'm just thinking already like fertility clinics I kind of I would say are struggling with you know dealing with people who have gotten to the stage of infertility who now need IVF and like the backlog is huge I mean the waiting times are kind of if you go through the NHS are well like kind of to a year to probably even longer sometimes so I think there's already like a bottleneck of like kind of 30 something year olds you know all needing fertility treatment when it's kind of like maybe they need to think about what can we do like before that you know and yeah and like put the funding into maybe supporting people into egg freezing you know in like like offer kind of schemes for that so it becomes more affordable maybe at that stage I don't know but that's just what I think in my head (laughs) definitely and I think a really important question that I wanted to ask you because I do have a lot of like coaches that listen to this podcast Mm -hmm. and personal trainers Mm -hmm. if we have clients or if someone themselves is trying to conceive how can we best support ourselves or our clients if we go through times where we're unsuccessful yeah do you mean unsuccessful in terms of hasn't like trying to conceive isn't going yeah so if they're struggling getting pregnant in the first place yeah okay um so I think in general and I think I know we've already spoken quite a lot about nutritional things but and like I said like nothing can unfortunately guarantee pregnancy but we can certainly kind of try and do our best to try and protect it or support it and I think focusing really on like nutritional gaps and making sure that somebody eats like I know I keep banging on about vegetables but just making sure like you know that you have a complete nutritional profile and your diet and all these things is actually so important and I think sometimes maybe when people come to us with weight loss it's just like okay well we'll just look at calories and that's fine I don't really care what else you eat kind of thing not not that that's how everybody does it obviously we all try and promote a healthy lifestyle but I think maybe sometimes um, it's maybe it's maybe easy to be a bit more lenient with people to kind of say as long as you're within your calorie deficit um, and you're losing weight you're doing great but I think really to kind of hone in more into the messaging that yes you can have a takeaway yes you can you know eat sweets or you can have some chocolate but it does need to be moderated you know you do need to make space for you know 
proper decent meals of protein vegetables and kind of like I said your whole grains and that is kind of important and yeah it's maybe like a bit boring and maybe <laughs> that's why yeah it's like I said it's it's kind of hard to adopt I suppose but I think that's really quite important to make sure because even if it's not just for fertility and like a lot of the recommendations in in, fertil in the fertility world it is really about creating an environment where a pregnancy can thrive, you know, and then eventually also, you know, you're talking, like I said, about child development. There's lots of research of how um, our diet as parents impacts um, then how our children eat as well. And also just to speak about like, you know, modeling behaviors, obviously, as well, you know, so if maybe um, there's like emotional eating, like, uh, the, you know, the parent like suffers with emotional eating or trying to conceive you suffer with emotional eating or even disordered eating, like, that's the time now to kind of like address those things, I suppose, um, to, to help with that um, so that it can kind of can get better. But I think specifically when things aren't really going the way, um, yeah, like that you expect it to be or, you know, it's becoming a lot more, yeah, kind of tougher, really hard. I think um, emotional management is really important, like kind of learning to um, identify your emotions, to sit with them, to kind of like... Um, yeah to kind of not be so reactive to them I suppose because I think you go, you're going through so much um kind of like building up hope and then kind of just being disappointed kind of every month um I suppose you're kind of forced to get used to that after a while but I think just being able to deal with that and to still kind of recognize like yes this is one part of my life that is happening right now but I have all these other things going on as well that I may be more positive and really kind of trying to find joy in other aspects of life I think is really important as for the individual but I think also maybe from a coaching perspective to to hone in on that with clients that you know it's not just all about trying to conceive um while there will be days in the month where you know the client will want to focus specifically on that and you know they just want to like sit and eat a tub of ice cream and cry that's fine and um, but you know but then the rest of the time to really kind of remind them of all the other things that are going so well for them or to um to encourage them to think about things you know other things that they can adopt I think I just saw I just said to somebody else a couple of days ago I'm just like so think about you know what are your hobbies like what do you want to focus on you know can you start something new is there something that you always wanted to start is there something you can really get your teeth stuck in um would highly recommend starting a business <laughs> that's what I did <laughs> last year <laughs> and that certainly has helped me so yeah if you're a coach listening to this maybe you have a new service that you want to offer <laughs> you yeah you stuck in. <laughs> definitely but no I think you've made really really good points there and it's like each week you know when a client checks in with me I'll always get them to start with something that has gone well that week because despite everything that's going on you know if there's things that's gone wrong in a certain week mm -hmm. or things that haven't gone as well as you might have hoped there's always something to be taken from each mm -hmm. week like a lesson or something that you've achieved that you should be proud of and yeah. I think zooming out is really helpful when you're going through difficult times yeah absolutely I think another thing I would say is also just to to not suffer in silence and yeah. I think maybe especially as as somebody who already um who like already knew or had had gone through like obviously my nutrition qualification all these things like I still went to like 
I don't know, different places in my head, like I said, where I still, even I then considered and thought, oh, I'll just do a 1200 calorie diet and see what happens. Or, you know, maybe I can just do this quickly. Or you, you, you start to question quite a lot of it. Like, I think there's this rational side of you who as like the coach and the, like I said, you have all your qualifications and your knowledge, but that doesn't always protect you then from your emotional side and, you know, the vulnerability that you feel already in being in that stage and like the, maybe like the thoughts of like failure that might come up or that you think that you're a failure or, you know, just the things like, oh, I can't give my partner a child. Like all these kind of things might come up with emotions. And also like I keep talking, I suppose, more from the female perspective, but also from the male perspective, there's obviously male factor infertility as well, or just from the male perspective as well, that to kind of stereotype, I suppose, a little bit. But in my experience I do find that men don't maybe aren't as forthcoming like and don't want to talk as much about these kind of things and I think especially that can be quite um difficult you know if we're talking about like masculinity and you know not being able to father a child so I think it can really bring up quite quite deep and sometimes dark thoughts I suppose so I think it's about kind of being aware of that a little bit as well and just to not suffer in silence and to recognize it and to ask for help when you need it um you know let it be to speak to your GP and advocate that you want some help with this or um, trying to kind of find out like seek out the communities that kind of exist online that talk a bit more about fertility trying to conceive etc yeah are there any tools that you use with clients to help them help encourage them to feel their feelings and emotions and deal with them so (laughs) I think to, to start off with, I think I kind of have a chat with them at the beginning about just generally just to kind of get to know them and understand how they would deal with situations, I suppose. And I think usually when it comes to dealing with their emotions, I think is a lot of it is connected to also their eating habits. So I think that's usually the way in that I find is because we're talking about emotional eating and about how to kind of deal with, with like the emotional eating side of things. So just trying to find other ways to cope with your feelings in the moment and I feel like that these are then also practices that they are able to then um, use just like just generally in life I suppose so for me for me to tell them about so I think like for example often I have clients who say who are coming home from like work and they're like mega stressed for example and then they immediately just in the cupboard and just want to eat absolutely everything but you know just finding other ways to relax for example in that moment and to cope with the stress so taking a bath going for a walk like and just having like a list like ready of things that they can kind of do or they can refer to on their phone or notebook or just have it like next to the door basically if it's a common thing for example I feel like that that's really helpful for them but also using um like the feelings wheel and I don't actually know if that's like a um the term for it but I just know that that's what the picture looks like it's kind of like this big wheel and it has like lots of kind of words to describe all the different emotions or feelings that have been identified um and just kind of because I do get people who are just like, oh, but I don't really know what it is or like, I don't know how I feel or, you know, and just being able to name that emotion, I think, can be quite freeing quite often. So that's another like kind of tool that I use for people to, um, yeah, just to understand their feelings better in the first place as well. Yeah. Do you ever use tools like journaling as well with your clients? Um, yeah, it depends. I think <laughs> I think that's more a little bit like comes from me, though, as well, because. Well, it depends. If they are open to it, absolutely. If they are open to it, absolutely. But I also have people, or 
including myself I think I don't know if it's because you kind of attract like people as your clients that are similar to you yeah (laughs) but I think I think sometimes I struggle with journaling (laughs) so I don't know if like for that reason I've not actually like um advised people to do it too much I suppose I've had one client who was really into it and who found it really useful and like I said that's absolutely fine that's great um but yeah I don't know I feel like other other clients have kind of come to me and been like yeah I'm not really into this and I'm like okay <laughs> yeah I hear you I hear you and there's no it just goes to show like there's no one size fits all because some people yeah. like you said you've got the client who absolutely loves it and finds yeah. it really beneficial but then there's yourself and like your other clients who yeah. just don't get on with it so well yeah and that's we're all different yeah absolutely I find as well when, when I suppose like when I'm just thinking about it I think especially in the community like the kind of fertility infertility community online like on Instagram I think a lot of people actually have anonymous um Instagram accounts and probably almost use that as a journal so they you know so when when I'm when I'm saying journal I'm kind of thinking of like sitting down with a book and I'm writing something in it but I suppose I, I find like a lot of people share um quite a lot um like I said just online on Instagram and that's probably like how I interact with quite a lot of people so maybe that's why I get clients who are then like yeah I'm not really into writing in a book but you know I kind of just use my Instagram account for it (laughs) yeah I get that and Mm -hmm. you mentioned about infertility earlier and sort of the definition of that would you mind just defining that again and also how common is it so infidelity like so like according to the world health organization is like a disease like they do call it a disease and it's about the failure to conceive within 12 months which i just yeah i I do take a little bit of issue with it because it just sounds so harsh like yes infertility can absolutely be a disease for somebody who has a specific diagnosis and i think it can maybe give them relief to call it as such because i think sometimes i think people feel quite misunderstood maybe in the infertility community and or it takes such a long time for them to get a diagnosis like especially if we're talking pcos or even endometriosis as well you know a lot of people can sometimes wait can sometimes wait years and years to finally get that diagnosis so i think for them it's quite useful that's i suppose called a disease and that's in that way and that it should be supported as such and um, talking about things like you know you know how support and work and all these kind of things um but I suppose there's also a category called unexplained infertility. And that is basically you've gone through all the tests. There's nothing obvious to say that you have anything or that should be preventing you from um, from from conceiving. Um, and there isn't really else that anybody can really do anymore or tell you what else to do, I suppose. So, yeah, and then it just becomes a bit odd to call it a disease, I suppose, because for some people it just genuinely takes longer than 12 months to conceive. And then maybe in the second year they will conceive or maybe in the third year they will conceive. But by that time, you're probably already so stigmatized by the whole process and just so like in it. Um, but yeah, so that's the definition of it. Um, and then how common it is. So in the UK, it's about one in seven couples that are um, affected by it. So that is just talking, obviously, um, I don't actually know if that, no, I think that just includes heterosexual couples, though. Yeah. So obviously you're still talking about, so it's not, we're not talking individuals at that point. So I think the, the figure that, the most recent figure that I've seen that affects 3.5 million people, so individual people in the UK, which is actually quite a lot, I suppose. Yeah. Um, 
but that will also include so obviously things so people like um it might be lesbian couples for example they tend to to access IVF because that's the only way for them to conceive or not just IVF but could be um, IUI first as well and then IVF um but it might be then that you know through that process they might find out you know that um that somebody like has infertility or struggling with infertility uh but also could be um single parents I suppose as well a single mother specifically going through the IVF process to have to have a child again through that they might find out that they that they struggle with infertility so one in seven couples but 3.5 million people I suppose yeah I think it's a lot more common than people almost think Mm -hmm. at first like you don't I suppose you don't really like you said, you don't really think it's going to be an issue. You almost expect it not mm. to be an issue. You expect yeah. it just to happen when you want to have children. And I think yeah. in a way it's kind of reassuring for people to hear that it is a little bit more common than people might expect. So that when people are having these issues, they know that they're not alone. And they know yeah. that there's other people going through this process. And yeah. it can be it can be very comforting to know that and to know that there's support out there and there's a network of people that are going through similar struggles yeah absolutely I think my only point or why I kind of say about that there's a definition for it or that you know if you haven't conceived within 12 months you are considered as infertile like the only thing I say about it is just like because I think it is sometimes just quite common to take time to conceive and while it is hard to kind of wrap ahead around it and I don't really want to take away from from the emotional toll that the whole journey brings with it but I suppose if we were just told that it can just take time then maybe it wouldn't be as emotionally draining Um, or you know you would kind of already maybe expect that okay you know we'll just see what happens in the first year and yeah of course you will still have moments where you think oh for goodness sake you know why you know another negative pregnancy test or something like that but you might just your expectations might be completely different if you already know okay let's just see how this goes for the next year or two or whatever rather than thinking um yeah this should work (laughs) within the next you know two months or something like that so um yeah I think that's that's the kind of the one thing where I think oh it's just it's a bit unfortunate that the that the definition is so harsh like it's so cutthroat like if if you've taken 13 months you're infertile <laughs> yeah exactly I know it's it's one of them things isn't it like yeah. and like you said it should be almost in education when we're first taught about getting pregnant and we're first yeah. taught about sex it should yeah. be that we're not we're not set this unrealistic expectation that it's just going to happen straight away. And instead we're educated on, you know, yes, why it's important to use protection and all of that. But also it might not happen straight away for you, if you do have sex and it might be that you have to be patient and that's okay. It doesn't mean that you're like abnormal. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's what it is because, you know you don't I think it's so it's so easy to think that something is wrong with you when maybe at the moment and maybe in 10 or 20 50 years time maybe research will evolve and we'll figure out why it takes longer for some people to conceive and whatnot it doesn't necessarily mean you know there's anything wrong with us but I suppose the way I understand it as well that just not every egg cell or every sperm cell is genetically made up to be 
a human or you know if they didn't meet and fertilize and not every embryo is is made up to to become like i said a human because just genetically there might be something wrong and it's almost like and, and it is the body kind of saying like no this is not right and i don't want to i don't want to like take them again i'm not trying to like rationalize miscarriage or anything like that with that but i think just understanding that sometimes on a genetic level like this is what happens and that's how you know um the, the pregnancy test is negative or maybe miscarriages will happen is the body saying like no something is not right you know we can't we can't grow a human here like it's not it's not working and like i said i'm absolutely not trying to rationalize or justify like you know i'm not trying to take the emotion out of miscarriage or anything but I think having the expectation of that that is quite common and that this is maybe a natural process can maybe just help a little bit with with the expectation of the whole journey. Yeah. And just being able to rationalise things is really reassuring. Um, yeah, I'm like a scientific yeah. level as opposed to, yeah. um, like you said, thinking what is wrong with me and yeah. like identifying as something being wrong with you because that's never yeah. helpful. Um, no. And if someone is struggling what are the options available for having children and what do they look like mm -hmm. so usually so if after um like a couple has tried for 12 months for example um they would go and see their gp um most likely that's kind of the starting point to kind of understand you know what's going on and they would um recommend certain testing so i think for the for women it would have to be like a testing um, at different stages of the cycle to understand if the kind of hormones are kind of all going the way they should be basically and um, and then for the man it would be like a sperm analysis um, and depending on the outcome of those things you would then kind of be referred often to gynecology to a hospital they tend to like repeat the same things again because obviously we know with hormones just getting one single snapshot of them is maybe not necessarily indicative of, you know, suddenly like, you know, that's a diagnosis or anything like it does sometimes just take time or it takes a couple of times to repeat this to understand actually what's, what's happening. Um, and then it, and then it really just depends on what they find, I suppose. Um, there are other tests that they can do. For example, you can check if for women that the whether the tubes, the ovarian tubes, are blocked. For example, and they don't actually like you know the egg might be released, but it can't actually get into the it can't like the sperm can't get to it to fertilize or and then it, nothing can travel down to the womb either for example um they do like a dye test with that where they shoot dye basically through um through your ovaries to kind of check if uh, if it's all there um if they are kind of if their suspicions may be of like endometriosis or um kind of like fluid around the ovaries or whatever they might um, order like a laparoscopy which is actually just the name for keyhole surgery but it's basically where they go in and actually check you know, if there's kind of like tissue growing where it shouldn't be growing or if there's fluid in certain places or cysts or anything like that. And unfortunately, that is kind of what women have to go through. Like it tends to, if the tests don't show anything, then it t tends to mean surgery and actually opening you up and looking, you know, what what's happening inside. <laughs> um, whereas I suppose for men, yeah, it's just a lot easier in that perspective. They can just provide their sperm sample. Um, obviously, if there's any issues beforehand, that you know you know sperm is not produced in in a way or not enough or whatever then obviously there might be some sort of like surgical interventions to remove sperm or to look to look at what's going on um but yeah it just depends i think the the the, the initial testing seems to be 
more or as far as I know more focused on the women to start with mm-hmm. um but yeah so these are the kind of tests available I suppose and there might be like other tests obviously as well just depending on people's circumstances and after that usually what then happens is that you are referred to something which is called IUI which is intrauterine insemination so that's kind of like a previous step to IVF so where um the sperm is inserted at the point of of ovulation so like the like a fertility clinic would basically help to kind of track your ovulation and then the sperm is inserted and then hopefully sperm and egg meet and they fertilize and they fall pregnant and after so and so many cycle of that if that fails again then you would kind of be referred to IVF which is then just a more kind of more lengthy process I suppose but this is kind of like the um yeah, these are kind of like the usual steps I think that happen. Obviously, like every journey, every like every couple's or every person's journey can be quite different, just depending on where they start. Some people might jump straight to a fertility clinic and just want to pay for certain testing to happen, for example, or want to, you know, go through private testing. Maybe they've done a lot of research online already and they kind of just jump ahead, or like I said, or they or things might just take a lot longer or. I mean, people sometimes go, depending on what their BMI is, they will go to their GP, they will ask for fertility testing and they will not get fertility testing because they just get sent away and they would just get told you need to lose weight without any kind of other like investigation into their health or anything like that, which is just a bit shocking to be quite honest. So there's really various different kind of um, experiences out there, I suppose. But the first thing is definitely to go to the GP and to ask yeah. for fertility testing. And what criteria, including BMI, do we have to meet if we want to qualify for options such as IVF? And why can this be problematic? So, yeah, so the BMI is usually the biggest thing. It really depends on where you live. So in Scotland, where I'm based, we are like we are quite lucky that we get um, access to three rounds of IVF funded by the NHS. But in England, it actually depends on the various different health boards or like the um, clinical commissioning groups like CCGs. Um, so it kind of comes down to your postcode sometimes what the IVF criteria are. So if you're at that stage where you are considering that, then I think that's probably the first thing you really need to look up is what the IVF criteria are for your individual postcode. Sometimes the BMI is 30. Sometimes they're looking for below 30. I've come across cases where there was people who were clinics were asking for a BMI of 27. Um, and then like usually if it's private, then it's kind of a BMI of 35. There might be other criteria such as, well, there definitely will be other criteria such as that um, you uh, can't smoke you need to like n- not be smoking at all Um, once you sign the paperwork for IVF it does specifically say that you should stop drinking alcohol as well Um, they don't test for the alcohol but with the smoking I think sometimes they actually test I think they can test it through like a little thing that you blow into basically whether you're smoking or not Um, and apart from that it's probably more in relation to whether um, the couple or, or one of the people in the couple has already had children so at the moment the guidelines still say that if you already have children from a previous relationship then you'd for example you're not eligible for funded uh, treatment you would have to pay for it yourself I think they're about to change that um but well just depends if the new government still agrees I suppose um and then there's also like considerations I suppose for lesbian couples as well because so far they had to go through 
multiple rounds of IUI, so like the kind of pre-step to IVF, um, self-funded, like they would have to basically, um, to prove that they are infertile. Right. And then they would only be able to be referred to IVF, for example. Whereas I think they kind of reduce that now that I think you only have to, you, have, you can do less rounds of IUI basically before you can jump to IVF. Again, this was all part of like the kind of health or in the health kind of agenda like a few months ago, but it just depends, I suppose, of whether they're actually going to implement that. But, <laughs> um, and then I suppose when it would actually come into force, I'm not 100% sure. So yeah, if, if somebody is, is kind of thinking about IVF, then that's the first thing to do. Check what your local guidelines are basically and go through them and kind of, yeah. The BMI, I suppose, is the most, yeah, it's kind of tricky um, uh, criteria of it because um, it's kind of debated whether the BMI really has that much of an impact on the actual IVF treatment. So a lot of the guidelines that you see is more in relation to the BMI having an impact um, on the pregnancy and again development of the child but maybe not so much directly on the actual success of an IVF treatment and I think a lot of people kind of debate and kind of say like well but you know why why is my chance of even trying to even create an embryo kind of prevented at this stage when it actually only like impacts on pregnancy but it depends I think there's there's like financial aspects part of it as well from the NHS point of view because I think basically you would require higher dosages of injection medication like medication for the IVF treatment and obviously that comes with it costs a lot more money to then fund it um, so I think there's like there's a reason why the BMI requirement is kind of there um, but also I suppose um, the tricky thing from, from the NHS perspective I suppose is also you can't really assess body composition and every coach that listens to this will know how hard it is like you know you can't you can't just stick any like everybody through like a DEXA scan or something like that to really understand you know is is the BMI high because of like excess fat levels are we talking visceral fat are we talking you know subcutaneous fat all these kind of things um yeah so I think from the from the NHS perspective, it's just like, well, we have a BMI requirement because everybody can measure BMI. Everybody can measure your height. Everybody can measure your weight um, and work out your BMI. But then in my experience, and I've been to two different hospitals and I think I have my height has been taken by three different people and I've been three different heights. So it's not as straightforward, apparently, either <laughs> the, the BMI requirement. So yeah. that can be a bit tricky. <laughs> Yeah, it's mad. And we, we all know that like BMI can be flawed, especially mm-hmm. in, you know, heavily muscled individuals, for example. Yeah. Um, and like you also pointed out, where our body fat is stored has an impact on our health. So, yeah. you know, someone might carry a lot of body fat body fat, sorry, to their midsection, and that might be a little bit more detrimental from a health perspective than someone who distributes their body fat more evenly or carries it in different places and so it can be flawed and someone could in could be in a very healthy body but not meet the bmi requirements and there's also maybe an argument to be said that like if someone is forced to meet the bmi requirements but sacrifices their relationship with food in order to do so Mm -hmm. they might end up going backwards and being in an even worse position from a health perspective at the end of the day 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's where, you know, just saying to somebody, just do a 1200 calorie diet, it's just so, so bad. Because like, you know, what are you doing? You're basically telling them to just lose weight, but you're not really fixing the issue that the research is currently telling us is then impacting them. Because as soon as the person then falls pregnant, they're just going to go back to just basically eating you know like the way they have always have you know I mean and probably even maybe like even worse just because you know like first trimester like food and diet can be really tricky to start with anyway and if it's just a continuation from that like it's just never going to get better so yeah I just I really sometimes don't understand why when they have when the be well I know again it's like it's probably finances and funding but when you stipulate a BMI requirement to then not also offer appropriate help for for somebody to actually get through this, I, it's just I just don't get it, and I I I get really kind of like <laughs> passionate about it just because I speak to so many um women in in this situation, you know, and even though they have been referred to NHS weight management or something like that, but you know, then it's like another twelve month waiting list or they you know they get to see somebody for half an hour like we all know as coaches like that's just not enough and there is actually research there that tells us that a more moderate calorie deficit that is supported ideally for six months through like some sort of coaching is what is useful um in that in that respect you know to reduce to reduce your weight and I just don't really yeah I just wish they would take that into consideration basically and also like we said earlier about the you know how age does matter you know just sending somebody as opposed to the consideration of just sending somebody away for for two years to kind of lose um, enough fat because their bmi might be 40 or above and probably will take quite a considerable of time to to lose that weight i think like with yeah when there's no like really hard and fast evidence to say 100 percent bmi impacts on the success of IBF. So I'm not talking pregnancy, like totally appreciate that, but to kind of refuse somebody the chance to just create embryos, I think is a bit too harsh in my opinion. Yeah, definitely. And so if someone, obviously we can't, uh, we can't do anything about the BMI requirements. No. <laughs> so if someone has to make these requirements to get mm-hmm. IVF, what should they take into account when they're considering their approach to doing that? Mm-hmm. I think I think it's a tricky one because again I think it really depends like people for example come to me at various different stages like some people might come to me and say I have um so fertility surgery so for like like a laparoscopy for example and my BMI needs to be below 35 for that so sometimes even for the fertility testing like I said like there might be a BMI requirement already there and then you only have three months and obviously you're not going to say and they've maybe already waited like six months to 12 months to even get this appointment so you, I'm then I'm not going to say to them well no I'm not going to help you you just figure it out yourself and they'll probably just go away and just try and like dehydrate their body or something like that for two days and or go keto or something like that you know what I mean like because that's literally what happens like when I look at like IVF groups or fertility groups, the amount of people that just say, I'll just take some laxatives and you'll be fine is honestly shocking. So I think from a coaching perspective, I think trying to meet the client where you can and just to try and make it as healthy as possible, the weight loss, I think is is kind of the, the agenda, I suppose. And like I said, if somebody only has like three months or so, like kind of like a few weeks, obviously you can kind of do um, quite a lot. 
again, like I don't think in any situation you really need a 1200 calorie deficit, but you might have to be prepared as a coach to maybe do something a little bit more below moderate, I suppose, to help your client and then just be there for them, support them like emotionally, obviously, and, you know, and be, be kind of empathetic to the situation. If somebody comes to you, obviously 12 months out, fantastic, because <laughs> then, you know, you've got time to kind of like, you know, you know, really teach them quite a lot about nutrition and like balanced eating and um, kind of mindset, all of these kind of things. Um, but yeah, so I think it really depends on, on, on when, when I suppose when they come to you, but as an individual, if you have time, then I would definitely recommend really sitting down and trying to think about why you overeat or why you are in the situation that you have excess body fat. Is it just a habit of, you know, that you just didn't, you know, do you just tend to eat from a bigger plate or something like that? Or is it actually your emotional eating, for example? And if it's your emotional eating, then you will need to take time to address that first, in my opinion, if you have the time. Again, if you have a coach, then if you have a good coach, then you might be able to kind of do it at the same time if, if if time is an issue, for example, where you can kind of work on your emotional eating and also um lose the weight that you need to if, if if you have like a specific appointment for you, for example. But I think in general, it's really about sussing out what the issue is to start with and then addressing it. And if you need help to ask for that help. And like, I think it brings me back to like, going back to a little bit on supplements where I kind of get a bit frustrated that people are quite happy to spend hundreds and hundreds of pounds on supplements when they would actually just invest in coaching that would have a bigger impact and it sounds like obviously coming from a coach it sounds like oh well you're just trying to sell coaching but that is genuinely not what it is like I I got a coach as well when um last year to help myself because you know it is just different and getting that help from somebody else is just so much better so yeah identify what the problem is and then don't be afraid to ask for help that's what I would say yeah amazing I have really enjoyed having you as a guest Celestia it's been amazing and I think that so many people will really enjoy and benefit from listening to this podcast where can people find you on social media where can they inquire about your services and all of that sort of thing um so I'm mainly on Instagram so it's just awnutrition underscore where you can find me cool for anyone listening I will put Alessia's information in the bio down below so don't hesitate to get in touch with her make sure that you give her a follow and as always thank you so much for listening it has been an absolute pleasure and I will see you in the next one thank you